1: Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion, listeners. I'm Vonnie Quinn. A special episode of Bloomberg Opinion this week. Helen Thompson, professor of political economy at Cambridge University, is the author of Disorder Hard Times in the 21st Century. The disorder the book presents emanates essentially from oil and fossil fuels more broadly. The geopolitical and transactional complexities of producing, securing, transporting and consuming that energy, according to disorder, underpin the great structural changes, both economic and political, of the last century. There's more, much more, but let's get started. So Helen, are we at a pivotal point now in how the global economy operates?
0: Yeah, I think that we are. I think we were actually at a pivotal point before the war. I think that what we could see during the latter part of the last year in the months since the autumn before omicron hit was that the world economy is facing some pretty serious energy constraints that really at any point when there's any significant growth the world economy is now running into high energy prices and we're not just talking about high oil prices as has been the case with most past energy crises at least since the 1970s we're talking about high natural gas prices and high coal prices too and i think High coal prices has really taken a lot of people, including myself, who try to follow the energy situation quite by surprise. And I think that that goes to show the depth of the issues that we're now facing, particularly when we bear in mind that we would like the world economy to be moving away from coal as rapidly as possible, given the need to address climate change.
1: One of your main theses is that the US failed to secure the stability of its relationships in the Middle East, and that created an instability around energy, which reverberates. So in a sense, this shouldn't have taken any of us by surprise by that thesis, right?
0: No, I think that what we can see during the the 2010s is, is that the United States, in terms of its own energy needs, is in a much stronger position than it had been in the previous decade since the 1970s. Because the shale oil and gas boom allowed the United States to achieve a higher level of energy independence, much reduced energy dependence. What was revealing, though, was the way in which as the United States achieved that, its very success had so many disruptive consequences in the Middle East in particular, because it was very problematic from the Saudi point of view to now find that American shale producers were big rivals for shares of world oil market. And as that came at a time when the United States under Obama was also trying to improve relations with Iran, and then things didn't work out very well in Syria, despite the fact that Saudis and United States started on the same side, what we see through the 2000s and the end as the shale boom goes on is a complete deterioration of US-Saudi relations. And although to some extent they're repaired during the, the Trump presidency is that Trump tries to hug the Saudis hard, He still isn't really able to influence the Saudis when it comes to the price of oil. And as the U.S. shale boom faltered during the pandemic, particularly during 2020, another American president was left trying to persuade Arab oil producers to produce more oil. The problem now is, with the exception probably of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, it's not quite clear how many of them really can produce more oil. Particularly, I think there are difficulties with Kuwait.
1: So there's a great global energy rivalry now between the US, Russia and China and countries from Ukraine to Syria to, as you say, Saudi have been caught up in this lack of foresight, I guess, on the part of the United States. Are we doomed to see nuclear powers face off until this energy revolution is somehow enacted?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much I would say that there was a lack of foresight in the United States. I think that there was a lack of a joined up strategy at various points and and, an inability perhaps to see the difficulty of trying to achieve conflicting aims at the same time in a way the way to think about what happened over the last decade in particular is is that two competitions ensued the first actually was in europe and in some sense has been the most geopolitically lethal and that was a competition between the united states and russia to sell natural gas in europe And from the Russian point of view, that was a really different situation than the one that they'd enjoyed in the 2000s, when they could take really the European gas market for granted. I think the big change that's happened in the United States, ironically, in good part as a consequence of the US shale oil boom, is that Saudi Arabia now has to think much more carefully about who it's selling its oil to. And that means that there's also a competition, I think, between Saudi Arabia and Russia to sell oil to the Chinese. And the Chinese leadership have a very strong awareness of China's strategic vulnerabilities around energy. China is also trying to act as no large oil importer has ever done before, which is really try to influence the price by stockpiling. Mm. So we've got complicated dynamics because it's not just actually a competition between The producers, we've got this very large consumer in China that's actually not quite really doing what other large importers have done and is not really prepared to accept a passive position in all this.
1: There is the longer term ramifications of everything that's going on and then there's the shorter term ones and there's a scramble now to figure out what can be done about Russian oil and Europe's dependence on it, China's ability to access it if Europe doesn't and so on. Is there a solution here beyond telling people to put on sweaters and reducing demand somehow?
0: I think that any solution is going to involve some measure anyway of reduced energy consumption, particularly when we bring the the climate situation into the picture. If we look at European Union, whatever the intentions, it's going to be very, very difficult to reduce quickly imports from Russia. Not least because Asian countries are also very big purchasers of liquid natural gas imports, including from the United States. Indeed, prior to this crisis, more American exports of liquid natural gas were going to Asia than to Europe. So if European countries are suddenly going to start competing for this gas, and we can already see these dynamics playing out, Gas is going to become a lot more expensive, not only in Europe, but it's going to become more expensive in Asia too. And it's not so clear that Asian countries can simply reorientate to Russia because there's only one major pipeline that goes to China.
1: Helen, we were speaking of the dynamics that are constraining diversification from Russian natural gas. And so I want to quote from Disorder. You say, in 2005, the pipelines through Ukraine still carried around 75% of the EU's Russian gas. Well, Helen, not much has changed as we're seeing. Does Russia have the potential to pivot to Asia and particularly China, the great consumer?
0: In order for Russia to be able to increase its liquid natural gas export capacity, then it's going to need capital investment from these Asian countries. And that may well happen. I think we are already seeing some signs of it from Japan and to some extent China as well. But new liquid natural gas exports from Russia aren't going to happen quickly. So I think that in a way keeps everybody where they are in terms of the supply chains of energy, and that means prices are going up. So if European citizens want their countries to buy less gas from Russia, then the only thing left is really to reduce European gas consumption. And we can already see that reduced energy consumption is the direction of travel. I don't think that that means either that the Russian gas dependency can be eliminated quickly. It's the one way in which something can be done. Now, the politics of this are really difficult. At the moment, I think there was at least moderate support for the idea of reducing gas consumption in Europe amongst many people, but certainly not amongst everybody. And I think that some of the people who are advocating it probably haven't really quite understood what the systemic consequences of ending Russian gas imports would be.
1: Helen, alliances and multilateral institutions, I'm thinking particularly of NATO, which seemed to be receding in importance during Trump's presidency. What happens to some of these alliances in terms of the shift from globalisation to economic nationalism?
0: I think that NATO is in a different position. I think the the fundamental difficulty that NATO has faced really comes from the differences in perspectives between on the one side, I mean, this slightly caricatures, but it will do. On the one side, like Washington, London, Warsaw and the Baltic countries, and on the other side, France, Germany, Italy. And there's been a very different view taken of the nature of the potential Russian threat and the nature of Russian power. And that this is very divisive in the European Union, because obviously there are a number of Eastern European European Union states that have got borders with Russia and feel very fearful since the war in Ukraine started. And on the other side, you had someone like President Macron, who I think it was in late 2019, was talking about resetting relations with Russia as a necessary condition for the European project being realised. So NATO brings out not only its own internal divisions, but also go to the heart of the divisions within a European Union that enlarged eastwards from 2004. I think in terms of the international economic organizations, we can see something different. I think the World Trade Organization has been on the back foot for a long time now. It was, I would say, largely irrelevant during the US-China trade war during Trump's presidency. I think there were some difficult questions now for the International Monetary Fund, though, Mm. as we see a number of emerging market in developing countries in considerable currency and financial difficulties as a result of the hike in energy prices and the rising food prices that have come with them I think the situation in Sri Lanka and Tunisia and Pakistan actually are are particularly troubling here. And as soon as we get into this minefield, so to speak, we've got the question of like, well, what kind of international financial credit can be provided to countries and what kind of political conditions come with that? And even if the IMF is in a position to provide loans with tolerable conditions to the governments in these countries, is we've seen over the last really since I'd say the 2007-8 financial crash, how in some ways the lender that really matters in the world isn't actually the IMF, but it's the Federal Reserve Board essentially as an international lender of last resort. And one of the countries that's been in considerable financial difficulty in this respect for some time now is Turkey. Mm. Turkey's obviously pretty geopolitically significant in this war. Turkey doesn't have a swap line to the the Federal um, Reserve Board. So I think that the really hard question is not particularly perhaps the question of dealing with a country like Sri Lanka but the question of dealing with a country like and Turkey is, in some sense been taken out of the remit of the international financial institutions, or at least that it's not where the decisive action is.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Turkey, obviously experiencing runaway inflation, Egypt, another one, you know, West Africa not getting food aid and droughts, staring places like Somalia in the face. I mean, it seems like we might be in for a period of extraordinary human suffering that was exacerbated by Russia's war in Ukraine, but not necessarily caused by it. Anxieties that were underlying many relationships, even multilateral institutions and their members, seem to be coming to the surface. What reckonings need to happen, Helen?
0: Well, I think within the European Union, a reckoning has really already happened because, quite simply, the view in Warsaw has triumphed over the view of Berlin and Paris during the course of this war. That isn't to say that the politicians in the German government will now do exactly what the Poles or the Latvians, etc., want them to do in terms of providing support for Ukraine of the kind desired by the Ukrainian government. But it does mean, I think, that the assumption of German foreign policy going back to the 1970s, so going back to the Soviet period, has really shattered. Now, I think that German politicians might want to try and reconstruct it, but I think they're going to find it extraordinarily difficult to go back to the idea that economic interdependence with Russia is a constraining force on Russian behavior. And they are going to have to take the problems of the security of the independent states that sit between Germany and Russia much more seriously than they've done since the Cold War. I think in terms of a reckoning more generally, I think partly what is going on is a realisation amongst Western governments, perhaps in particular, that the issue of energy and climate can't really be thought of in binary terms. We can't be in a position where we're only serious about the climate if we're not taking any notice of what's going on with the problems of fossil fuel energy. And I think you can see this in the moves that Biden you know, has made, is that Biden came in, wanted to prioritise climate, hope that oil supply and oil prices could take care of themselves. It isn't possible for governments to try to demonstrate their climate credibility by disengaging from the issue of having a fossil fuel energy strategy. That isn't because we don't need to move away from fossil fuel energy, but given that we can't do that with any alacrity, Fossil fuel energy supplies are not going to take care of themselves in the immediate present. And the only way in which the pressures on them right now is reduced is by considering reduced energy consumption.
1: Listeners, a reminder, do get in touch. As always, comments and opinions welcome. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or just email vquinn at bloomberg.net. Helen, I want to talk a little more about China's rise. Yet another global shift that you point out is very nuanced. In the last 12 months in particular, we're really starting to see chinks in China's armour in terms of its growth and COVID strategies, market turbulence too and developer defaults and on and on. Is China going to be the formidable foe that we've been suspecting it might be?
0: Yeah, this is an interesting question. I mean, I think that actually the 2010s showed that China pulled in contradictory directions when it came to the question of whether it was a rising power. So obviously, if we looked at it in terms of GDP growth, then China has grew through the 2010s quicker than the Western economies. And particularly by 2017, Really, I think everybody understood that in order for Western economies to grow, for the rest of the world economy to grow, China needed to grow globally synchronized growth. I think the IMF of the synchronicity, if you like, was China. But on the other hand, I think that China had some clear economic difficulties in the 2010s that weren't there for it in the 2000s. I'd point in particular to China's 2015-16 financial crisis, when it faced a serious outflow of capital, when the implications of the Federal Reserve's plans to start raising interest rates in the latter part of 2015 became clear. China, I think, acquired a significantly greater vulnerability to the dollar and to dollar debt during the 2010s compared to what it had in the in the 2000s, and that also made the push that China had engaged in to internationalise its currency, the Renminbi, really impossible to pull off. It led to a fall away in investment to a number of European countries. It became difficult, I think, for people to see that China could move up leagues, so to speak, you know, financially if it had a currency that was still subject to such strict capital controls. And now China's in this difficult position in regard to covid clearly the chinese vaccine is not as effective as western vaccines the take-up has not been great they're now obviously in a position where they've decided that the only way that they can deal with this outbreak however severe or not it turns out to be is with these lockdowns and locking down shanghai is obviously a very very different proposition this clearly has profound consequences for china But it also has profound consequences for the rest of the world in terms of the way in which China's weakness then moves itself around the world because of the importance of China to international trade. So I think that what's true about the world and has been true since some point in the 2010s is that the rest of the world is now as much exposed to China's weakness as it is to China's strengths.
1: And in terms of capital flows and so on, I mean, the momentum had been towards increased, easier capital flows from China to the rest of the world and vice versa, capital market openness. Are we coming to the end of that era, you think, Helen?
0: It's very striking the way in which uh, the Wall Street firms have been, um, you know, very keen to move into China over the last 18 months. And I think that one of the things that I actually spent quite a bit of time on in the book that looked like it was going to be consequential, which was the breakdown really of Hong Kong's position as a kind of portal between um, the West and China mm-hmm. and financially, it looks like it was less significant than I thought that it that it might be, that the tightening up in Hong Kong hasn't led to a sort of a greater financial separation between China and the rest of the well, world. Not yet anyway. Um, but- yeah, so the fact that the financial interdependence has deepened is really both quite striking and how it plays out in terms of the decoupling on the trade and technology side, which doesn't look to me that it's gone away before we even get onto to the sense of you know, green energy competition. This is going to be really interesting to watch how these competing dynamics interact with each other.
1: There's a lot of hand-wringing about small-D democracy. You know, you talk a lot about representative democracy and about neoliberalism and the death of the Anglo-American model. What happens in the next electoral cycle?
0: Well, I mean, I think the United States is in for another tough, at least, presidential election in 2024, because it's difficult to see how the Democrats go into it in any kind of good shape. I'm not saying it's particularly Biden's fault, but... Biden has ended up having to deal with a set of really, really hard problems of the kind that we were just talking about in the first part of our conversation, particularly about energy. And if you look at the history since the 1970s of American presidential approval ratings and oil prices, they quite strongly correlate. At times, they extraordinarily strongly correlate. Mm. So... It's very difficult, I think, to see how Biden would get re-elected, assuming he does want to run again. But at the same time, you clearly have you know, some pretty profound divisions within the Republican Party and how actually there can be an election that doesn't bring this issue of losers' consent back into play again. I find that quite difficult to see. And if we move to the midterms, Then clearly, if the Democrats were to lose the midterms quite badly, which seems looking from here quite possible, then that makes things very legislatively difficult for Biden in the second half of his presidency which kind of creates more impasse politics, which, again, I don't think does anything to help the strains on democracy. How are the deep structural forces that
1: you've been explaining that are at work in the international economy interacting with political contingencies? So I guess previously I would have said things like Brexit, Trump's election, but now it's Biden's low polling, the outlook for the midterms.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that what we can see like through the 2010s was that things that look like they've got nothing to do with each other, i.e. that look quite... Contingent on something quite specific to a country's politics actually can be linked to these changing structural forces. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book in the way in which I did. So you wouldn't think on the surface, for example, that Brexit referendum and the difficulties that David Cameron, the British Prime Minister, had in winning that referendum had got anything to do with high oil prices in 2011. But I I think that there was a relationship because of the difficulties that those high oil prices caused for the European Central Bank in responding to high oil prices by raising interest rates twice in 2011, the Eurozone got pushed back into recession that made for a macroeconomic divergence with the UK economy, led to an increase in migration. That produced something of a political reaction in the United Kingdom that spurred the rise of the United Kingdom Independence Party, wanting a referendum on EU membership. That was part of the story in which Cameron not necessarily came to the decision in the first place in 2013 to hold a referendum, but the way he tried to renegotiate the terms of UK membership before holding the referendum, I think, was very much influenced by the rise of UKIP. So things in one sense that look contingent, actually, I think, had considerably more structural forces behind them. The pandemic's an interesting example because in lots of ways it was a contingency, but I think that the nihilist would say that actually there were some reasons to think that the nature of the global economy, particularly the way in which global air transport work, actually acted as a rather rapid carrier. I think that the, the thing about elections, we didn't see it in the French election, is, is that sometimes they can be you know, like incredibly close. Um, I think we saw that to some extent in both the last two US presidential elections, where the margins in individual states that were decisive didn't turn out to be very large at all. It doesn't take much to imagine either of those elections, particularly perhaps the first one when Trump was elected, going the other way. And then much of what happened in the second half of the 2010s might have been different. I mean, I think some things wouldn't have been. For instance, I think that Hillary Clinton election victory in 2016 would still have led the United States to pursue a rather more confrontational policy with China than it had done during the Obama years. Because I think by the time that 2016 had come about, given Xi Jinping's articulation of the Made in China 2025 strategy in 2015, there was quite a strong consensus in the United States for a more confrontational approach Mm. and in that sense Trump just articulated it in a crude way rather than actually creating that break himself.
1: You talk a lot about the problem of losers consent and how that's been a bugbear and may continue to be but losers consent has always been a problem right?
0: Absolutely. I mean, (laughs) loser's consent is necessary in a democracy, and there are times when it's been pretty absent, I think, would say, particularly perhaps in the United States in a number of moments. On the other hand, I would say that what we can see in the United States is a weakening of loser's consent since at least the 1990s. For instance, the attempt to impeach Bill Clinton, I think, is an example of the fact that a section of Republican Party and interests aligned around it weren't actually willing to accept elections, determining who was the president and wanted Clinton removed from office by other means. Mm. I think what's happened in the United States is more tricky than it is elsewhere because of the nature of the presidential election system and the fact that it straddles the federal part of the US with the Democratic part of the US Mm. via the Electoral College. And once you've had two elections in 16 years, as it was, where the Electoral College and the popular vote diverged from each other, I think that in itself put considerable pressure on losers' consent. So I think it's always a risk that it isn't there in democratic politics, but I think the United States over the last 30 years has gone further down the road of having a problem with it.
1: So, Helen, if we are to just take a look at some of the large forces at work, globalisation, do we need to save the current global order in some fashion?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure what global order there is right now, yeah. which can be saved.
1: I mean, I guess the, the idea that even trade relationships are changing, but there is still this impetus to try and create trade alliances that are global, you know, so AUKUS would be one of them, for example.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's clearly still an interest in some kind of rule-based international trading order. I think the difficulty is, and we saw this, I think, during the the Trump years, is that there are some issues around the size of certain countries, particularly perhaps China's and Germany's trade surpluses, that themselves have destabilising effect on the world economy, and in the case of Germany, on the Eurozone, and to some extent, the European Union. I think the difficulty is, though, what you do beyond maintaining the rules of the World Trade Organization about some of the underlying causes of those differences? And I think that's where we get into considerable difficulty in imagining that we're moving to a world of greater international cooperation. And I think we can see that with exchange rates in particular. Ever since really the middle of the 1980s, Western governments plus Japan and now more recently China have kind of inched their way towards sort of tacit, at least agreements about how to manage exchange rates and then pull back from them because they're actually, I think, in, in, incredibly difficult given the nature of the world economy, particularly how financialized it is. And I think that what we've seen more generally over the last few years is a pulling apart of the globalisation story when it comes to finance, to trade and to some extent production. So if we take finance, actually, there's been extraordinarily little decoupling between the US and China in recent years. Indeed, since the pandemic, Wall Street is more embedded in China, I would say, than it was before. Mm. And yet we can see on the productive side of the economy and supply chains, increased pressure for decoupling. I think that we can see that governments across the world actually have got much more of an interest than they did have in The resilience of supply chains and insecurity in relation to supply chains. And the more that they think in those terms, I think the harder it is to be putting back together a globalised, productive economy.
1: So I had to stop underlining because I found myself underlining something on every page, but you... Write a lot about the 1970s and how important the 1970s are in terms of our understanding where we are now and how we got here, especially the latter part of the 70s. I mean, there are a lot of economists out there that would suggest that we are in a regime that's nothing like the 1970s. But explain to us what you mean by the importance of the 70s to now.
0: Yeah, I mean I would agree that there were some significant differences between the 70s and and now and one pretty big difference is, is that there were very well organized trade unions capable of imposing serious harm on western economies. I mean you think of the the miners strike in Britain for example in 1974 that led to a national emergency and everybody going onto a three-day working week and sitting around in the you know at night in the darkness that world doesn't exist anymore. I think that the reason why I think the 70s are important is twofold, really. The first of them is the origins of some of the economic and geopolitical issues that we now face lie in the 1970s, particularly, I would say, on the geopolitical side in terms of what's happened in the Middle East. But I think I in a way want to draw attention to the 70s now to show the ways in which actually the predicaments that we face are harder than the ones that existed in the 70s, despite the parallels in relation to energy shocks. Mm. So if we take oil, for instance, there wasn't any real problem with the supply of oil in principle in the 1970s. The problem came because it was geopolitically constrained by the reaction of the Arab states and to some extent Iran to the Yom Kippur war in 1973. And then it was geopolitically constrained by the Iranian revolution and the Iran-Iraq war at the end of the decade. What's different now is that there are reasons beyond geopolitics why the supply of oil is constrained. That Actually, the major oil producers are all in different ways struggling with the limits of oil production Mm. and you can see that in the faltering of the u.s shale boom you can see that in the fact that probably the russian oil fields in west siberia have passed their peak the production difficulties in kuwait and even in a country like venezuela where there wouldn't in principle be any difficulty with supply there's enormous difficulty with the politics And then the other really big difference with the 1970s is that these were Western problems largely in the 1970s, plus to some extent Japan. Now they're China's and India's too. And that has pretty important consequences for us in Western countries. That means that there's going to be much more competition for the supply of energy that's available. And that means, I think, that it's going to be harder to find a way out of the problems that energy causes in a way in which there was a way out in the late 1970s, which was increased production in both the Western Hemisphere, Alaska and Mexico, but also in the North Sea. And then on top of all this, we weren't having to face the situation that we are now with climate change. In the 1970s, in principle, we could have been, but we didn't understand enough about it. So we're trying to deal with all these present tense energy problems while we need to engage in this energy transition. Now, I think that that's going to take longer time than many people think, but it doesn't change the fact that it's got to be done. It's got to be done, I think, not just for climate reasons, but also to deal with these fossil fuel energy problems in their own terms. So the 70s is useful as a story about the origins of our present crisis, but I think it's just as useful actually in holding it up and showing the ways in which actually what we are facing now is really quite different.
1: Helen Thompson, thank you. Listeners, the book is Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Do get in touch with your thoughts and opinions. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at bloomberg.net. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion.